If war is a human endeavor, can the actions of one man against all odds change the course of a battle or a war? That is the subject of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome to The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, a retired cavalry colonel and former instructor of the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College. The purpose of these podcasts is to provide all citizens with the information they need to wisely fulfill their responsibilities in our nation's decisions regarding war. In the next couple of episodes, I'm going to address the role of great commanders in military history. The War College teaches that the two most important attributes of a strategic leader are vision and strength of will. With regard to vision, that means the ability to clearly see and articulate to others a desired end state. The second attribute, strength of will, has two aspects. The first is being able to hold on to that vision despite setbacks, to weather the storms of adversity. The other is being able to get others to share that vision. I don't believe these characteristics are unique to military leaders. Take a moment to think of successful business and political leaders, or even people that you've worked for, who you admired. You'll probably agree that those people displayed those attributes. But this episode is not about good leaders. It is about great military leaders. It is particularly about leaders who change the outcome of wars or campaigns that were critical to the outcome of that war. In some cases, their impact extended far beyond any one particular war or even their own lifetimes. The challenge in this is a long-standing debate on whether the man makes the times or the times make the man. My criteria of a great military leader will look at whether things would have been different if that leader was not there or if someone else could have stepped in to assure the same or similar outcome. Think of this as the Indiana Jones rule. In the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones actually had no effect on the final outcome. Everything would have turned out the same if his character had never left the ivy-covered walls of his university. I'll begin with an example of a great commander who does not make this cut. General George Smith Patton, Jr. As an armor officer, it's probably heresy for me to say that Patton was not one of the truly great commanders. There's no doubt that Patton was a great commander. His relief of Bastogne on the day after Christmas 1945 was a phenomenal achievement and assured that the German Ardennes offensive would quickly collapse. However, did that make a difference in the outcome of the war? It is generally believed that the Ardennes offensive was doomed to failure regardless of the events at Bastogne. Patton's leadership probably brought the war in Europe to an end a few weeks faster than it might have otherwise, but he did not have an outsized effect on its execution or outcome. For similar reasons, I don't include Marshal of the Soviet Union Georgi Zhukov. Again, there's no doubt about his command and leadership. It's hard to say, however, that the war in Russia would have ended differently without him. On the opposite end of the spectrum of great commanders is Napoleon Bonaparte. I won't discuss him among the great commanders either. This isn't because he wasn't a great man in military history, quite the opposite. Clausewitz referred to him as the god of war himself. It's just that Napoleon had such a great impact on the military and political history of Europe that almost any other person pales in comparison. Instead, I'll start with another commander whose leadership in war and peace changed the history of the world, General George Washington. 
An entire library's worth of books have been written about George Washington, and I will not repeat what so many other people have said much better than I ever could. I want to stress how Washington's personal influence on the battlefield was critical to the success of the American Revolution. Most people have at least a passing familiarity with the story of Washington crossing the Delaware on Christmas 1776 and routing the Hessian forces at Trenton, New Jersey. This was the beginning of a period known as the Ten Crucial Days. Between the signing of the Declaration of Independence and the Anglo-Hessian forces going into winter quarters, the British sent more than 30,000 troops to suppress the rebellion in North America. Under the command of General Howe, the British forces seemed unstoppable by American militia forces. Washington's leadership through the Ten Crucial Days would change that. After convincing about half of his troops to remain after the expiration of their enlistments on December 31, 1776, Washington had about 6,000 militia to defend against an attack of 8,000 British regular and Hessian mercenary troops under the British General Cornwallis. The Americans were initially successful in defending Trenton. Cornwallis then ordered more troops south from Princeton to resume the attack the next day. Both Cornwallis and Washington knew that the American force would not be able to stand against the renewed attack. Cornwallis expected Washington to retreat during the night. He did, leaving campfires burning by a small detachment of New Jersey militia. But instead of retreating into Pennsylvania, Washington skirted the British to the east, moving deeper into New Jersey and away from his own lines of supply and possible retreat. Using a road that seemed to be unknown to the British, Washington marched north to attack the British logistics hub at Princeton. At one point during the assault, the militia forces, unused to fighting well-disciplined British regulars, fell back disorganized. Washington rode to the foremost edge of the American line under fire, saying, Parade with us, brave fellows. There is about a handful of the enemy, and we shall have them directly. With that, Washington rode, at a walk, towards the enemy, not looking to see if anyone followed. An aide of Washington's wrote that he covered his face with his hat, not wanting to see the general shot down from his horse. The aide heard a volley of fire and, looking up, could not see Washington through the gun smoke. When the smoke cleared, Washington was still there, unharmed, within 30 yards of the enemy line. But to either side of him was the line of the reformed American militia following Washington's example. The volley the aide heard was from American muskets. Those ten days shocked the British. Washington proved that his amateur army could beat British regulars. General Howe retreated, consolidated his own forces, and sent to London for more troops. The effect on the American cause was electric, and new volunteers to the army streamed into Morristown, New Jersey, where Washington had moved his troops into winter quarters. Later engagements in 1777 did not go well for Washington, but he was able to keep the army together through the year and into the winter encampment at Valley Forge. It emerged from there as an army equal to any European force. From these accounts, Washington's personal presence, his vision, and strength of will were essential to success. There is no indication that any other real or potential commander of American forces could have sustained the military effort until the combined effects of military operations and diplomacy could achieve success. This success was so remarkable that at the final surrender of the British Army at Yorktown in 1781, 
General Cornwallis had his band play a piece called The World Turned Upside Down. Next is Generalfeldmarschall Gebhard von Blücher. Blücher makes this list because his vision and strength of will were decisive to the outcome of the Waterloo campaign and the final defeat of Napoleon Bonaparte. Blücher also makes the list because of his personal failings. The cancel culture of today acts as though anyone we want to hold up as an example must be perfect without fault or blemish. This stands in stark contrast to the historic and legendary example of heroes. Heroes are people who, like the rest of us, make mistakes. Heroes are able to learn from these mistakes and rise above them, conquering themselves as well as the enemy. For example, as a captain of hussars, which are light cavalry, Blücher was, shall we say, over-enthusiastic. While suppressing an insurrection in Poland, he staged a mock execution of a Polish priest who was suspected of supporting the rebellion. This created a scandal in the Prussian press and in the Prussian court. As a result, and probably aided and abetted by his reputation for drinking and womanizing, Blücher was passed over for promotion to major and then dismissed from service by Frederick the Great. Despite his personal flaws, other key leaders of the Prussian military must have appreciated the potential of that young Hazar officer, because, upon Frederick's death, Blücher was reinstated and promoted to major. As time went on, the older and wiser Blücher admitted and regretted his faults. Blücher immediately started to make a reputation for himself as a dynamic cavalry commander at increasing levels of responsibility. Three years after his reinstatement, he was awarded Prussia's highest military honor. By the time of the Prussian defeat in 1806, he was a lieutenant general leading several cavalry charges against the French and then commanding the rear guard. When the main body of the Prussian army surrendered, he cobbled together a force that continued to resist the French, aided by his new chief of staff, Gerhard von Scharnhorst. Eventually, with his back to the Danish border, he was forced to surrender. The French accorded his force full military honors, and Blücher was allowed to keep his saber and remained at liberty until he was exchanged for a captured French general. When Prussia changed sides and resumed fighting Napoleon in 1813, Blücher was in command of the Prussian cavalry. His offensive spirit drove the Allied forces forward despite their unwillingness to coordinate or subordinate themselves to one another. He responded to this lack of consensus by attacking the French on his own, virtually forcing the other Allied commanders to follow suit. Blücher never thought of himself as a great strategist. Instead, he relied on the superlative qualities of his staff officers, such as Scharnhorst and August von Gneisenau, men whom, with Clausewitz, had reorganized the Prussian army and created the German general staff system. Blücher's forces were not always victorious, but he never let those setbacks defeat him, becoming known for his continued commands of Vorwärts, or in English, forward. His drive and enthusiasm, coupled with the genius of his staff officers, convinced the Allied leaders to push on into France in 1814. The importance of Blücher's personal vision and strength of will became apparent after the Battle of Léon in northern France. He successfully defended Léon and forced Napoleon off the field. However, Blücher himself became ill near the end of the battle, leaving Gneisenau in effective command. Blücher suffered a breakdown and was reportedly catatonic for interludes. This time revealed how much the Allied force depended upon Blücher's drive and even charisma. Until his recovery, 
Even though the command of the army was under the genius of Gneisenau and other Prussian general staff officers, the Prussian-led forces played no further role in the campaign. After Blücher's recovery, he energized the combined German force to drive on to Paris. During the Waterloo campaign, this same personal spirit was critical to the success of the Allied forces. The Prussian forces under Blücher's command were en route to link up with Wellington in southern Belgium. However, at Ligny, a full day's march from Wellington, the Prussian forces were attacked and beaten by French forces under Napoleon. Blücher himself was wounded and trapped under his fallen horse. Gneisenau took command and rallied the Prussian forces into an orderly withdrawal. Against his preferences, Gneisenau did not retreat along his lines of communications back to Germany. Instead, he followed Blücher's previous command to withdraw to the north, towards Wellington. This broke contact with the French, which assumed that the Prussians would retreat eastward. Some hours later, Blücher, now 74 years old, resumed command after dressing his wounds externally with copious amounts of rhubarb and garlic and internally with copious amounts of schnapps. Gneisenau counseled withdrawal and recovery. Blücher said no. Forwards, he was quoted as saying, I hear you say it's impossible, but it has to be done. I have given my promise to Wellington, and you surely wouldn't want me to break it. The Prussian force, personally led by Blücher, arrived in time to attack the French right flank, pushing into its rear, tipping the scales in a battle that Wellington described as the nearest run thing you ever saw in your life. The regrouped Prussian forces then chased the retreating French forces all the way to Paris. Despite these successes, Blücher acknowledged his limitations. At a ceremony at Oxford University awarding him an honorary doctorate in laws, he said that if he was a doctor, then Gneisenau should at least be awarded an apothecary. Blücher said that he was the one who ordered the prescription, but it was Gneisenau who made the pills. These are two examples of great commanders who, by virtue of their personality, changed the outcome of campaigns and wars. For Washington, we have good reason to imagine that without his leadership, personal example, charisma, and strength of will, the American Revolution may well have failed, or at least been less successful than it was. For Blücher, we have examples of what happened without his presence, and how his actions inspired other commanders to act against their inclinations. In the next episode, I will present two more examples of how the vision and strength of will of one person can change the course of a war. After that, I'll move on to the role of heroes. Please look out for those future episodes of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare.